You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer in other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon com slash obsessive viewer where for a recurring monthly fee uh, you'll get access to exclusive b-roll episodes tv and book reviews and reactions movie reaction recordings commentary tracks and early access to podcast episodes Again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, I have several different uh, tiers uh, with a range of benefits for each one. So check that out if you want to um, get more audio content or just support the show. Uh, again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. So today on the show, I'm going to be discussing Little Girl Lost. It is the 26th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on March 16th, 1962. And of course, I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 33, Before the Beginning. (sighs) And what I've been doing lately is is telling uh giving an update on what i'm up to in the world of fiction and science and to be quite honest um i'm recording this about maybe 48 hours after i recorded the previous episode so <laughs> in those 48 hours nothing much has been going on in terms of sci-fi for me um so i don't really have anything for this segment except that i did uh start uh, i'm i don't know i put in i put in my disc into my ps4 for uh mass effect legendary edition because i think i might replay those games if you have a ps4 or xbox or what have you um just mass effect is an incredible video game franchise um i actually went to pumpkin patch with with my girlfriend and her family uh and i saw someone wearing an n7 like windbreaker and i was like yeah that's my people um anyway mass effect is incredible check that out also check out my dark reviews as i said before all of that so all right let us tarry no further i'm gonna go ahead and go into this episode so little girl lost this is one of those big iconic episodes that has permeated pop culture that i was aware of uh before even starting this project and everything so many years ago so what i knew before was that it's about a little girl who gets trapped in an alternate dimension and it revolves around the efforts of the people in our world to get her out And I assumed that um, The Simpsons, because The Simpsons did a parody of it in one of their Treehouse of Horror episodes. I believe it was uh, Treehouse of Horror episode six or seven. I think it was episode six, um, which was in season seven. And that episode was great. Like like that segment, it was a Homer cubed where uh, Homer basically stumbles into into the third dimension where he's just computer generated and uh and he's wandering around this just like landscape of of a kind of a three-dimensional plane 
And um, <laughs> uh, I remember just there's one part where he's like standing there and he's like, I feel like I'm wasting a fortune just standing here <laughs> um, because of the price of animation and 3D animation and all that. But it is the it is the episode that has the iconic um, line when Homer looks at the wall and sees the weird portal. He says, this is like something out of that Twilighty show about that zone. Um, so yeah, so I, so this episode, Little Girl Lost was very much ingrained in my mind, even though I'd never seen it. So now I have seen it and let me get, go into my review. As always, I'm going to read a plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And, uh, just so you guys know, this is where the spoilers start. So I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode starting now. So if you don't want to be spoiled, please go check it out and then come back. But here we go. Plot summary for Little Girl Lost. The parents of Bettina Miller, a six-year-old girl, face a problem with a solution that cannot be found in any textbook. In her bedroom, they can hear her cry for help, but they cannot see her. In desperation, Chris Miller phones his friend Bill, a physicist, to come over to the house and help solve the mystery. When the family dog runs under the bed, he vanishes too. Bill arrives and after exploring a number of options, finds an opening on the wall behind the bed, leading to another dimension, a freak of nature that rarely happens. Since the other side is not laid out like, a, like their world, finding Bettina is not as easy as reaching out and grabbing her. In desperation to regain his lost daughter, Chris falls through the portal and taking advantage of the opportunity, calls out to their dog Max, who leads Bettina back to his arms. Bill pulls them back into their world, holding on to half of Chris's body during the rescue. With the entire family safe at home, Chris learns that while he was inside, the door to the other dimension was slowly closing in on him. Half of his body almost left our world for another. Um, so that's the plot summary, and he says that the dog's name is Max, but um, I there's some discrepancy on that front because in the episode I was hearing them say Mac. I was so certain that they were saying Mac, but further reading in the in uh unlocking the door to television classic references that the dog the dog's like real life character was like real life the real life dog's name was Rag with a G and they decided to name the dog Mag so that it sounded like the same name so that it would be easier to get their get the dog's attention. I don't know where it is. I put Mag in the in the in my notes, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> who knows? Uh, well, I mean, it would be as easy as just checking the the closed captions. But I'm already recording, so unfortunately, that's not uh, gonna happen. So anyway, uh, yeah. So talent rundown for Little Girl Lost. This episode stars Sarah Marshall as Ruth Miller. Uh, and Robert Sampson as Chris Miller. These were both their only episodes of The Twilight Zone, although I did hear or I did read um, a bit of trivia that it's sort of interesting and morbidly curious. They were born, I think, 15 days apart, and they actually happened to pass away on the same date in different years, but on the same date. Um, so that's kind of I don't know, unique, but, uh, Sarah Marshall had only this, uh, this episode of the Twilight Zone and Robert Sampson only had this episode of the Twilight Zone. However, he, uh, Robert Sampson appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1960 that was titled The Death Waltz and in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964 titled The Mutant. 
And co-starring as Bill is Charles Aidman. Uh, This is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. Previously, he was in the season one episode and When the Sky Was Opened. And of course, he was also he also served as narrator for seasons one and two of the 1985 Twilight Zone revival. So that was super exciting to to see him pop up again. And he also appeared in two episodes of One Step Beyond uh, in his career. And uh, let's see, as Tina Miller, um, uh, Tracy Stratford played Tina. Um, This is her first of two Twilight Zone appearances. Next, we'll see from her is in season five's Living Doll. And, uh, and, and, and she kind of had like an uncredited role, at least in the closing caption or closing credits. And Rhoda Williams also had an uncredited role as Tina's voice. And this was her only episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, and it's kind of unique that they had her serve as the, do the voiceover work for Tina when Tina was in the, in the other dimension, um, I think that it was incredible voice work, uh, and and the sound design of this episode is absolutely astounding. Really, um, I'll talk more about that as I go on. But it's just interesting that they had someone considerably older. Even she was Rhoda Williams was I think thirty two at the time of of this episode's production, um, doing the voice of a six year old. <laughs> uh, writer for this episode was Richard Matheson. It was uh, written from his short story that was published in Amazing Stories in the October to November edition of Amazing Stories, uh, 1953. Uh, This is his ninth of 16 Twilight Zone uh, credits. Previously, we saw from him is Once Upon a Time, and next we'll see later this season, Young Man's Fancy. And rounding out the talent for this episode, director Paul Stewart. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, a little piece of trivia is that he was a notable character actor with over 100 acting credits uh, that included roles in Citizen Kane and In Cold Blood. And he apparently had decided to move into directing sometime in the mid-50s after he had become bored with acting. And he felt a level of disgust for the roles that were available to an actor. Um, at the time, so he really just wanted to pursue a more creative side of the industry. And I guess, according to Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, um, the produ- one of the producers on Alfred Hitchcock Presents kind of gave him a chance and let him direct an episode of Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, from there, he just kept directing and everything and eventually landed this episode of The Twilight Zone. So that is the talent rundown for Little Girl Lost. And let me get into my review. I am very, very delighted to say that coming off of last week's uh, last week's review of The Fugitive, I, I had mentioned in that episode that I was a little bit, I don't know, a little bit despondent about the fact that the last few episodes of the Twilight episodes of the Twilight Zone, for the most part, haven't really wowed me, and I felt a little bit of like not discouragement, but I just I wanted I wanted to. I wanted good Twilight Zone. I wanted, I needed that good, good, good Twilight Zone. And I'm very delighted to say that Little Girl Lost delivered on that all, all told. It it was like, it was, it was fantastic. I really, really liked this episode. Um, And what's interesting about that, and I'll talk about this as I go through the review, but what's interesting about it is that I am someone who, as if you're listening to the, this is episode 90 of the main feed of, of anthology. (laughs) This is like my 153rd episode total. If you've listened this far (laughs) into this show, you know that I am more attuned and more of a fan of the social commentary episodes and the episodes that have deep like character meanings. 
So I was pretty surprised that when I saw Little Girl Lost, I took to it as strongly as I did, because frankly, this doesn't really have that, this doesn't have any of the, like, that social commentary thing, or it doesn't have any, like, strong character, like, learning from their mistakes sort of, sort of storyline, or, um, or, um, learning from their mistakes, or, oh god, uh, or being dealt a cruel twist of fate by the Twilight Zone. It doesn't have any of that. This is just a, this is just a, a ghost story, basically. This is an urban legend in the realm of the Twilight Zone, and I ate it up from the jump. This was a great, great episode, and I'm going to go into the review and everything, and I'm going to talk about the different levels of subtlety in the script and everything, but I think that this is absolutely a standout episode of the Twilight Zone and very well worth the cultural um, the cultural, um, the, the kind of pop culture longevity that it's, that it's, um, enjoyed over the last, what, 60 years. So, so, okay. So that's, that's my rambling, like praise of Little Girl Lost before the, uh, before the review proper. <laughs> so we open up on a night's, uh, a nighttime, uh, scene of a, of a city street, a residential city street. And I, I couldn't find anything to corroborate this, or I don't know if this is the case, but I am almost certain that it's the same exterior location that was used for the shelter. Um, in fact, it looks it looks like the exact same exterior of the house in the shelter, the one that Rod Serling was standing in the in the bushes of to for to give his uh, opening narration. Only it feels like it's shot from the other side of the sidewalk. So in the shelter, we see. Uh, the house and it pans over to the sidewalk and we see everyone running in different directions and everything. This, I believe, is the same street, the same sidewalk, but it's shot from uh, the opposite end of the sidewalk where it's pointing in the opposite direction and we see the house on the right instead of the left. So I think that that's right. If I'm right, I'm right. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But yeah. So... Uh, we open and we're inside the house and we hear a little girl crying in the distance. And um, the first, just about the first thing we see in in the whole episode is a picture of of Tina uh, as a as a little girl, obviously um, on the dresser, a framed picture, and we hear her crying. And I love that. That is the first of many very subtle kind of um, tension building and suspense building moments. And I love that it, I love it as a visual cue because it's showing that she exists, that there is a little girl that lives in this house, but is demonstrating to us through like audio and visual that she's not there at the same time. She is lost in limbo in a limbo of sorts. And we can see her, but we can hear her, but we can't see her if that makes any sense. So, right from the jump i was i was impressed cuz i i found it really interesting that it was just going right into it like she's already lost in the other dimension at the start of the episode i was for some reason just assuming maybe because i know the uh treehouse of horror segment of the simpsons backwards and forwards but i was assuming that she we, it was going to begin with her stumbling into the other dimension and then the the parents trying to get her out Instead, this is just, they're woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of their daughter crying and, and crying out for her parents. And that creates such 
a haunting, a much more haunting story in this in this episode than it would have if we had seen the genesis of her going in there, because we don't see her stumble into the other dimension. In fact, we don't even know for sure that that's how it happened, since when later in the episode when Bill is talking about it, it's all just really a hypothesis by Bill. Um, for all we know, like there's this there's this certain level of subtlety to the horror in that respect because. We have a child in peril, and it's a horrific idea. Just the idea of a child being in peril is enough to get your adrenaline pumping and get your nerves just going going hard. And what we have here, though, is the mystery of how she got into peril. And there's always that idea, and I'll talk about this here in a bit, too. I'll expand on this further, but... At this moment, there's always that idea that she had been taken as opposed to being just stumbling into it. And with the idea of her being taken into another dimension, what could have possibly done that? What could have possibly taken her? So I feel like that's always at the at the back of, of the audience's minds. And that creates an even more tense situation. And couple that with the sound of Tina calling out for her mommy from nowhere. It's just disturbing. It's so disturbing. And you hear the distance. They have this reverb effect that grows more and more um, apparent throughout the episode and throughout the whole the whole storyline. And is it's just it's fantastic. The sound design, like I said, is absolutely fantastic. And then uh, adding to the adding to the mounting pressure of this scene is the dog barking incessantly. And here's where I think the show gets an, onto an even deeper level of brilliance with this introductory scene because Chris gets his slippers on and he goes to the he goes to Tina's room to comfort her and and you know attend to her because he's a father and he sees that the bed's empty so he thinks she's under the bed he's he kind of laughs to himself and he's like oh did you fall like did you fall um did you fall next to the bed or, or what? And he kind of laughs to himself and then she starts calling for him crying. And I really like how Chris's tone is comforting and disarming. And like I said, he kind of laughs at, uh, laughs to the laughs to himself when he mentions that Tina probably rolled onto the floor. And I like that because it's as much about him being a parent as it is about him trying to comfort her and when he and then he realizes that she's not under the bed and that kind of gets that kind of takes that that a little bit of that laugh out of it out of his out of his um a, a, a little bit of bump out of his step and uh he i don't know i just think it's just really enticing so then he gets up and he turns on the light to look under the bed again it's empty and then we get one of like i think that this is just such a cool opening uh, opening, uh, introduction, introduction to the episode. And I think that it's such an awesome, uh, introduction to Serling because as Chris is looking under the bed, the camera pans over to show Rod's shoes as he's walking up to his mark. And then it pans up to show him. And I just love that. I think that that is, that is such a cool introduction for Serling. Um, cause like we've had scenes in the past where he just kind of like, walks out from behind a tree or he he walks from behind um a a wall in the hospital in in eye of the beholder and everything but this is this is something different this is 
this is showing him and like and giving us this energy or this this uh not suspense but it's kind of giving it a little bit more oomph to it that we just see the we see his feet and then we pan up i don't know there's just something something kind of spectacular about that that i'm not sure i'm really quantifying um in a clear way but i just i really like it um and i just i i think at the the bottom line is i think that the fact that we see him walk up in only his shoes it really kind of plays in my mind into the stature of Serling and the Twilight Zone uh, as a whole. And I wonder if that's a reflection of where it was culturally at that time. And if that's that's them kind of playing with the whole like, okay, we're three, we're almost a f- complete three seasons into the show. You know what's about to happen, so let's have fun with it and let's let's really get you get you surling and uh, and have you guys feel that kind of tension when he comes on screen because he's about to introduce this crazy story that we're gonna uh, play out for you. So anyway, we get Rod Serling's opening narration, which I will play right now. Missing one frightened little girl, named Bettina Miller. Description, six years of age, average height and build, light brown hair, quite pretty. Last seen being tucked in bed by her mother a few hours ago. Last heard, aye, there's the rub, as Hamlet put it. For Bettina Miller can be heard quite clearly, despite the rather curious fact that she can't be seen at all. Present location, let's say for the moment, in the Twilight Zone. And a quick note about the opening narration. Um, so it was clearly shot after um, it, it was shot. It was shot it, obviously out of sequence. The whole episode is shot out of sequence and everything. But it was clearly shot after they had set up the uh, the marks of the door on the on the wall <laughs> because you can see over his shoulder um, the outlines of it, um, because they had erased it and then, uh, penciled in the mark so that they could keep it for the next, for the next shot and everything. Uh, so that's kind of funny. And I didn't catch this, but I read in, uh, unlocking the door, um, that apparently the first few seconds of, uh, the narration, when it pans up to him, you can see Rod looking over to his left to look for his cue to start talking. Um, I wish I would have gone back and watched that just to see it, but Either way, this is a very cool opening narration. And, of course, we have a uh, Shakespeare reference as Serling, uh, well, as the show likes to do, really. <laughs> um, and I just really, I, I like that. So, okay. So at this point, this is such a strong introduction. I want to talk about this introduction uh, before I get into get into it, because this is an amazing introduction to this story, because the pace is so relatively slow as we build up toward the reveal of the missing girl. And I just love that the way everything plays out in this opening scene before the narration, it plays out like a normal routine. Like, you know, uh, Chris and Ruth wake up to the sound of their, their child crying. They don't really think anything of it. So like Chris is like, okay, it's my turn. I'll go and I'll go and, uh, and, and get her back to sleep and everything. It's just a normal parent experience. And the fact that it's normal and it keeps keeps getting further and further from normal, but in a slow pace, 
makes for just an incredibly mesmerizing opening scene by my estimation. And as someone who doesn't have kids, I'm curious, like, I'm sure that people that have kids have in the past when they watched this when it first aired and currently probably feel even more tense when watching this because it feels like such a relatable experience and just the fear of it. I don't know. It just, it just, I don't know. It's done really well. So anyway, Chris goes into the, or he's still in the room rather. And, uh, he's still looking for, her and he tells Ruth that, uh, that she's not there. And I, I just want to say, like, <laughs> I have in my notes that I really like the look of the house. Like the set of the house is like really good. It seems like a big, very, um, uh, almost Brady Bunchy kind of house, I guess. But I really like the look of it. It looked like there's a, the floor plan looks really good. There's a lot of spaces where they can, you know, look for her and everything. And I put in regard to that on my first viewing, I put the set deck, the, the set decoration is strong in this episode. <laughs> and then I kind of read that again after I'd rewatched it and everything. I was like, yeah, I had no idea because when we get to the end of the episode, it just, I think it's, it's beautiful. Um, which is another thing I, and I'll, I'll, I'll obviously reference this as I go in, uh, through the review and everything, but this episode was so entertaining to me and it had this, this level of, um, confirming my suspicions repeatedly. So I, there were moments, there were, I think three total moments where I was like, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen. And then, like, as soon as I press play after making my note of, I wonder if this is going to happen, the thing happens. And I was so just, I was so along for the ride. It was so entertaining and I loved it. I was having a blast watching this episode. Um, just an absolute blast. So as the sound of Tina's voice is still wailing through the house and everything, I'm picking up on just just how particularly haunting it is. It really is. That reverb of the voice and the distance of it, the volume is very low, but there's a reverb of it, so it sounds like it makes the effect that she's shouting, and it's just, it's it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, I just realized I could do a reverb effect, but I'm not going to. Anyway, so... <laughs> Um, uh, it just really communicates how difficult it's going to be for them to find her. And it's just, it is, that's what the core of this episode is about for me is the out, uh, the absolutely out of this world idea of how they can get through this ex experience, which I'll talk about here in a second as well, but just how they are so out of their element. Everyone is. And it just makes it so intense and suspenseful for me. And I like that here we get both Chris and Ruth looking under the bed again. And that even communicates just how, how disconnected they are with the idea of what the, how they can solve this problem. Because they don't realize exactly what's happened yet, but they're looking under the bed again because that's literally their only other recourse at this point. Because it's it's out of the realm of possibility it's out of the realm of the explainable for them and it's just that level of tension that you you can hear your daughter but can't see her and have no idea where she is is horrifying and so 
All the while the dog is barking and then uh, Chris runs into the other room and calls uh, Bill. And this again is another incredibly nice, subtle way to really uh, kind of bring home the tension and the suspense and everything because he is on the phone with Bill and he's like, hey, you need to come over. It's an emergency. Tina has disappeared. And then Bill waits, or I'm sorry, not not Bill, but Chris waits a second because Bill is responding. And then Bill says, no, she wasn't kidnapped. She's here, but she's not here. And at the first, at, at first I thought that's such an interesting leap to make. Like she was kidnapped. Okay. That's, that's a weird leap to make. But as I thought more about it, I think that that is a brilliantly subtle, um, piece of tension building in the episode because it makes it so that the audience who is already experiencing this level of, oh, what would I do if I were in this situation? Like, what would happen if my daughter or my son or my whatever uh, is, like, is gone? What if my cat is gone? <laughs> but what if, what if I were in this position? And given that it is such a a relatable thing to have an added scene or an added line of Chris just mentioning that, no, 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 she wasn't, she wasn't kidnapped. She's just disappeared. That lends an even more deep deepness to the fear that the audience is experiencing because that's a tragically relatable thing. Like, oh, being kidnapped, that's a thing. Like kids can be kidnapped and so that that kind of subtly brings brings out that level of realism because they they always have like the audience has the safety net of like okay well a portal to another dimension is highly uh, highly you know improbable and everything but oh wait he mentions that she could have been kidnapped like that's a, that's a real threat that's a real thing so i don't know i just i just uh i think that that's a really interesting um a really interesting kind of subtle line to throw in there. In addition to that, we don't know, we still at this point don't know the circumstances of her falling into the other dimension. So it also makes us kind of consider um, on a very subtle level, the idea of some kind of extra dimensional monster grabbing Tina and pulling her into the other dimension, because we don't know what's going on over there. Um, so I just think there are a lot of layers to this, to the tension and the suspense in this episode. And I just think it's, it's masterful. It's masterfully done. Um, and then, <laughs> so here is the first instance of me, uh, asking a question and then pizza just, uh, my cat just jumped over, over me and hit the mic. Sorry about that. Uh, this is my, one of my first inst instances of, uh, of saying, of wondering like, oh, I wonder what this is. And then unpausing it and just getting immediate confirmation because I put, I wonder if Bill is a scientist. And the reason I asked was because I don't, I didn't understand the significance of calling him specifically. And then immediately after that, uh, Chris goes into the room with Ruth and he's like, I called Bill. And then she's like, why'd you call him? And he's like, oh, he's a physicist. He'll know what to do. He'll probably know what to do. So Bill then goes, uh, no, no, not Bill. I put that wrong in my notes. Chris goes to let the dog in and then says that he plans on looking on checking under the house. And, 
I like that as well because checking under the house, like presumably he's meaning to go outside and check crawl spaces or in the foundation or something. I don't know, but something he's trying to look for his daughter underneath the house. But what makes it so good is that there's no logic, logical way that Tina would have managed to get herself under the house and still be able to to yell and be heard and everything. Yet it's literally like the last logical explanation that the parents have for it. And then here's another example of, well, not really. This is a looser example of me uh, asking a question and then immediately having it answered. But I wondered at this point that I wondered if the dog barking had any relevance to Tina's disappearance. Like, was the dog trying to signal to them that, that uh, Tina was in trouble? And uh, in in any case, I like that the dog kept barking because a, um, it adds to the suspense and everything. The kind of cacophony of sound is, is really good in that, in that case. And then I like the fact that it's like the dog is trying to alert the parents because it is trying to, you know, get their attention because something has happened to Tina. And then when Chris lets the dog in, he runs under the bed and then just disappears. And I thought that was fantastic because that is such a great way to bridge the bridge the gap between um, having the characters, having the parents think that, oh, this thing is going to trying to think logically of the situation like, oh, she, maybe she's under the house or something. It's a great way to bridge it from that to them realizing that, oh, there is something something not normal going on here. This is something out of the realm of, of, you know, real life going on here. So that makes Bill's entrance here in a bit, uh, have a lot less of uh, less, uh, narrative, um, weightlifting to do because he doesn't need to explain too deeply because they've seen that, yeah, the dog is gone. Uh, so there is some kind of portal under the bed or near the bed. Um, also I put in my notes that I really hope the dog was okay. And that led me down this whole thought, this whole train of thought that I had that I think is evident to how great the storytelling is in this episode and how much respect I have for Richard Matheson as well. So this episode already has this little girl that's in peril in this completely crazy situation And now a dog has joined her. And what I started thinking was, I, I, not even thinking, what I started worrying about, (laughs) because I was so just engaged with the story, was that I was worried that this was going to go a particularly dark route. Um, Or maybe not dark route, but a more ambiguous route. Like, I was thinking that it might, that there was a possibility that it could lead to a similar ending that a similar ending to the one that we got in the Odyssey of Flight 33 where i was afraid that the parents and bill were going to eventually exhaust all of their ideas on how to get tina back and the episode would end with them trying another thing and then just implying that they would be they that it wouldn't be resolved so uh <laughs> I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that that is way too dark for this show. And that is way too dark for this particular episode. 
But that was still on my mind as I watched the episode for the first time. And again, I didn't, I, I really did not think that the show would leave a child in endless peril without resolving the story. I knew that in my bones that that's not how this was going to, uh, going to happen. But it being a possibility just really stayed in my mind and really elevated the suspense for me and helped just keep me engaged with it because I was just very, very intrigued by what was going to happen. And I don't know. I, I love it. I, I loved it. Yeah. So Chris looks under the bed again and says they're not under the house. <laughs> uh, and that kind of brings us into this, not montage, but this... Uh, this next scene where time has clearly passed a little bit and uh, there's a knock on the door and it's Bill. Bill has arrived and he suggests that they move the bed um, and Ruth just kind of freaks out slightly. She says like, where is she? Where is she? I can't, can't get her. I, she can't breathe, whatever. And Bill kind of reassures her and says that Tina is still breathing okay and she's fine and that they'll find her. Uh, which is kind of a nice like comforting thing. I like that this episode doesn't really play up the, that kind of harried, um, mother kind of angle. Like I know, like last week in the fugitive, we had, um, a pretty, I don't know, like we, we had a, an overbearing and abusive, um, guardian character. And I know that the twilight zone has had times in the past where some, of the women characters who can be kind of shrill and um, very kind of not necessarily cartoonish, but I don't know. But I feel like Ruth in this episode is very much a more grounded and realistic kind of persona, even though she is kind of laden with the, with the extensive like angry or fearful kind of reactions while Bill and Chris are kind of, are a little bit more even keeled. Um, even though Chris does have a few like outbursts and everything, but I do like that it's, there is, there is a lot of stuff covered throughout all of them basically. So then Bill starts looking for the opening after they've moved the bed. And there's some really good, like very careful, like mime work done here by, uh, uh, Charles Aiden, I think. Um, so, or a Don, uh, let me see. I'm scrolling up. Uh, yeah, Charles Aidman, Aidman. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he's just kind of walking around. He has his hands in the air trying to detect like the opening of, uh, of the portal. And at this point, like he hasn't told them what he's doing or what he is, um, what he's looking for exactly. And something that I found really interesting about this was that, I hadn't considered the fact that the opening is in three-dimensional space. And what I mean by that is that as he's walking, he's kind of crouched down. He's very carefully taking steps so as not to fall through the floor or anything. But he is putting his hands in front of his face and moving them around in the empty space above the floor. And I hadn't considered that this portal could just be in empty space in the room. And I found that to be very, uh, the, the carefulness of that really helped heighten the suspense and everything. And I think that that says a lot about the detail of the show and the way that, th that this episode brings the audience into the story, specifically because 
I knew that it was on the wall. Like, thanks to The Simpsons, I knew that it was going to be a portal on the wall. I knew that they were going to draw with chalk the the doorway and everything because The Simpsons followed that to a T. But I was still so wrapped up in the episode, I was just letting the story guide me. And I kept thinking, like, what if he falls through and falls into it? What if the physicist falls into the other dimension and has to find Tina himself? Or what would Chris and Ruth be have to do on their end at that point without their physicist. Like, I just find that there were so many different variables and everything that I was just very engaged by it. But they find the opening, it's in the wall, no one falls through yet, but (laughs) Bill says that it's an opening to another dimension. And I feel like the visual effect of Bill putting his hand through the wall and it disappearing, um was was very good like it kind of was a little bit reminiscent of uh how i felt about the the ball flying through the air in the last episode in the fugitive um but i really like the visual effect of that and i really like the hesitation that bill uses um in his voice and the hesitation that they all experience really because ruth and chris are panicked and they want to go in after her but bill is placating them and saying that hey yeah it's a gap opening into the fourth dimension and it wouldn't be laid out like our world so we can't just we can't just reach in and pull her out or anything because we don't know what's on the other side we don't know where she is on the other side and he kind of confirms that with saying like why like that's why the dog hasn't found her yet and i found this interesting because he does say that it's the opening into the fourth dimension, and I found it interesting that it that it was the fourth dimension in the episode, since the um, the narration for the original the original narration for the pilot episode, where is everybody? Uh, for the opening credits, the original narration said that you're entering the fourth dimension, and then eventually someone like in, before they got production started on the show proper, I think. Uh, someone had pointed out like, oh, hey, uh, the fourth dimension's time. It's actually the fifth dimension you want. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't, I'm curious about that. But it's interesting because the closing narration kind of winks at that a little bit, which I just, guys, I really, really like this episode. <laughs> this episode is just so much fun. So then Bill starts speaking with some level of authority about extra, tim- extra dimensional space. And he, but he does say like, oh, I'm no, I'm no expert, but his hypothesis is just amazing. And I think this is one of the reasons why I love this episode, because this is a grounded, a grounded experience or a grounded, a grounded explanation of an unexplainable situation. And the theorizing that's done feels like it's sound. It feels like a sound theory. Like it follows its own internal logic and is, is great at just living, living the story basically. (laughs) And I, I love it. So he says, so Bill says that the third dimension is just a step away from the fourth dimension. It's a big step, but it's a step nonetheless. And if our dimension is represented by points that are perpendicular to the points of the fourth dimension, Sometimes the dimensions can align and create a doorway. And this is my, this is maybe my favorite part of the entire episode. Just the explanation and the theorizing. I feel like it is just so, it, it's top-notch science fiction. And, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and I love the way that it was riffed on um, in The Simpsons because Professor Frank just draws a cube 
um, on it and everyone is on on like a chalkboard and everyone gasps and everything because they're 2D animated. Anyway, um, so Bill goes on to explain the dimensional portal as a freak of nature. And he, I, I feel like that gives even more tension to the scene and to the story because we've established that we've, we have the established confusion, um, and already have our characters in way over their heads with now two members of their family being lost in the other dimension. It is a highly volatile situation that they find them in, find themselves in. And then now we have an escalation of that tension because the idea is being presented to us that the opening is purely coincidental and it makes it sound so unwieldy and unmanageable. And it's like, up until this point, we kind of thought like, well, you know, um, like it could happen at any point. It like she could have fallen, fallen, uh, under the bed and then stumbled into it at any point. But the fact that this is just a, once in a in a universal way like once in a lifetime experience that this is just happens to be any like it can happen at any point makes it so uh tense for me and it just reestablishes the stakes and incredibly well i i love it so then after Bill draws his, his, you know, frame of the door and everything, which by the way, I love that it's slightly askew. It's not a perfect doorway. It's like kind of, kind of tilted and, and thin, um, and everything. I, I like the way that it's not like a perfect doorway. I think that leads to that, that leans more into the whole idea of it being a completely, uh, circumstantial experience and something that is a freak of nature, like Bill says. So Bill throws a coin through the portal and then Ruth cries out. And I, I think so, even though I said that it's, it's cool that they didn't have like too much of like that, you know, that, um, that, uh, that hysterical woman archetype from the fifties and sixties stories and everything. She's kind of doing that here, but I feel like it's great because it comes at the end of a scene where Bill is explaining the fourth dimension and explaining how the portal formed, all of that. And it's great because we're so wrapped up in that just exposition dump of incredible science fiction dialogue that I'm following just so, so like beautifully because it's being explained so clearly. We don't even realize that Tina hasn't been crying or saying anything anymore. So Ruth screaming out and saying like, she, I can't hear her anymore is signaling to us like, Oh, we haven't heard her either. Holy crap. And then that is a very appropriate point to bring us to an act break. And I just, I love it. I think the, I think the suspense in this episode is just fantastic. So when we come back from the act break, Bill tells Ruth and Chris to start moving around and it's kind of like he's, um, I guess it's, it's supposed to be uh, introducing the idea that, uh, that the d- fourth dimension is occupying the same space that they're in, obviously the the third dimension. And they look up at the ceiling and they hear Tina crying 
and Bill tells them to start looking around for her all over the house. And it's to kind of get an idea of where in the parallel dimensional space she's in. And also it leads to them calling out to the dog to try to get her to, to get the dog to Tina and then have the dog lead lead her back to the portal. And we get this really great, again, a very subtle, like wonderful um moment where Ruth is looking for her in the bedroom closet of her her and Chris's bedroom closet. And she's next to the picture of Tina that we opened the episode with, that we saw at the opening of the episode. And I feel like that's such a nice touch because it's that subtle visual cue that makes this episode so great. It's one of the examples of a subtle visual cue that makes this episode so great. And the show itself just is so incredible because we don't need the parents to tell us how dire the situation is. We just need this to see the photo next to an exasperated and fearful mother searching for her daughter. And that gives us all the emotional context that we need. And I just think that it's just brilliant piece of set decoration and uh, direction and everything. I just, I, I love it. So Bill calls out for them. Uh, and they all gather around this desk in the living room, I guess. Um, and they hear her louder near the desk. And Bill says that she's beyond our world, which is super ominous and creepy and everything. And then, and then this is something I didn't really understand all that well, but he says she may as well just be turning in her sleep. Um, I don't know if he's saying that she could just be asleep in the other world. I don't know, but it also, I think the the kind of positive spin on that is that it adds to the level of insanity that they're facing and the just complete lack of, you know, preparation that they have because they really don't know anything. And we, in turn, realize that even if the expert, even if the physicist character in the episode is unsure of himself, that just confirms to us that us, we, like me, just a a dumb 36-year-old podcaster wouldn't have the first clue as to what we would do in this situation. So it's just, it's that level of just, just guiding the audience through this, what would we do kind of uh, scenario in this completely illogical, improbable, out of this world premise. So as they're huddled around the desk, they hear the dog and Bill tells them to call to him. And uh, we hear that Tina like hears the dog and comes up to the dog and asking him where he's taking her. And I just want to say, I just, I really love that the dog is the one that helps saves the day. Like this dog is like the savior of Tina in this story. And I just love that. I think it's great. And this is a very, very light connection, but it sort of makes this a a kind of fun companion piece in a sense to the hunt, just because it's about, you know, people and dogs. Um, but anyway, Ruth tells Tina to go with the dog. And uh, again, we hear just the, the sound of Tina. She sounds so sleepy and vulnerable. And that just really makes the tension all the more strong because she's in this other dimension. She may think that she's dreaming. She may think that she's, she, she may, it's a dream state that she's in and she's half asleep. It's the middle of the night. She's fearful. She's scared. She's crying. She doesn't know what's happening. And it's just, it's, I think the voice work is just fantastic. Um, yeah. So they all go around and go back to the portal and call for the dog and we hear him coming and everything, but I feel like that obviously wasn't going to work. And it 
kind of doesn't. And, uh, well, it, it, it's not that it doesn't work, but it, we're reaching into the, to the end part. And this is the other part where <laughs> I had a thought where it immediately got answered because I paused it and I wrote down, I wonder if they're going to show the other dimension. And then I unpaused it and cre- Chris reaches his hand in and just, we see the other dimension. Like it is literally seconds seconds after I paused it to ask that question in my notes. Um, and the design of it is stunning. It's so cool. It's like, there's this giant marble that looks like it's holding galaxies and mountains and stars in it. And then outside of that, there's other stars, like a kind of whirring or like a swirling fan of a blinking light of a star in the distance. And, we see that Chris's hand is like massive in, in comparison to the stuff in it. And it just, it looks so disorienting and so weird and out there. And so it's just, it's great. So Chris calls for Tina to grab his hand. And, um, also I should say that I was not expecting the dimension to look like that because I'm going solely off of my, knowledge of the Simpsons, which is just that three-dimensional plane that Homer, uh, stumbles into. But anyway, so Chris calls for Tina to grab his hand and then he falls into the dimension. And I kind of laughed a little bit because it reminded me of the scene in five characters in search of an exit when the major just falls off the rim of the, of the thing. Uh, and we get Chris in the other dimension. And this is such a trippy and, awesome sequence it, it like the screen is spinning around the 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 frame is spinning around like i think it's counterclockwise and chris is at one point sideways it all looks so distorted like the aspect ratio of the picture is all wrong and there's what looks like this like mist rolling through around his legs and this giant moon in the back in the background that i think might have been uh, supposed to be representative of the portal into our dimension, or maybe not. Uh, who knows? That's what's so great about it because we don't know what it is. It's so just abstract and weird. It's it's awesome, and it looked like he was in that globe thing itself or the bit giant marble. But again, we don't know. And then Chris is talking. He's yelling for Tina and that echo reverb effect on on the voice in the dimension is so great because it's amplified. It is amplified like a megaphone, a a reverby megaphone, and it just conveys this sense of chaos. And like, how is he going to find Tina in this world that he can't even, we can't even orient ourselves to what's up and what's down. It, it's so awesome. It's so awesome. And then we see Tina and the dog as the camera keeps spinning and it's just, it's so awesome. Like we can't get a read on where she is or how far away she is from Chris because the dimension keeps spinning. And again, that disorienting level of everything is just so cool. I love it so much. So Chris yells to Tina make sure that she can hear him and tells her to grab the dog's collar and let him lead her to him. So Tina uh, does that, but she doesn't know where she is or where Chris is. She keeps uh, saying that. She asks where he is and everything. And then it seems like the distortion effect, the echo, the reverb, the, the level of spinning and everything seems to be 
getting worse and worse. And the sound of the voices, again, become more echoey. And given that it's now we now we're hearing that effect on Chris's voice as well as Tina's voice, it just creates this extra sense of danger and fear. It's just this is the climax of the episode and it's so cool. It is it's so thrilling and everything. And again, I love that the dog is the hero because Bill said earlier that dogs can kind of sense uh, have a better sense of sense of these things than humans can, uh, or animals have a better sense of these things than humans do. And just the idea that dogs can sense and track stronger than humans in general. So the idea of Chris calling to the dog to bring his daughter to him is just really cool, really pleasant. And we get we get Tina holding on to the collar and letting letting the dog guide her. It's just it's great. I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, and so it leads to Chris seeing, seeing the dog and Tina, they're reunited. And like, I am like damn near applauding in my seat because it's just so thrilling. So fun. I love this episode, you guys. (laughs) So, uh, as they're now holding each other and we have that triumphant thing for the briefest moment, I'm like, all right, how the hell are they going to get back now? (laughs) Like what's going to happen? So Chris calls out that he has them and Bill, I think Bill says or starts to say that he's going to pull them back in. And then Chris kind of gets confused and he's like, well, how are you going to do that? And before he can even get his words out, they're just suddenly pulled back into the room, which I think is a fun, like jump scare sort of thing, because we are expecting him to finish his thought and everything, but he's just suddenly brought back uh, with them. And it's just, it's, it's triumphant. It's awesome. It's just so awesome. And then I really like that once they're in the back in the room, Ruth immediately grabs Tina and and says, like, I'm going to get her out of this room and gets her out of the room. I think that's great. That's awesome. And so then we get kind of the denouement of the episode where Chris stands up and he asks what happened. And Bill says, well, I pulled you out. And Chris is like, well, what do you mean you pulled me out? And he's like, well, half of you was inside uh, the other dimension while the other half was here. And then I love the way that... Um, that Chris says he, I, I couldn't even feel you holding me. Like I couldn't even feel you. And, uh, I couldn't even feel my other half being in the other dimension and everything. I just love the astonishment because that plays into this whole like otherworldly thing. And this, the supernatural element of this, the science fiction element of this. Um, and then Bill, uh, or no, Chris says like, well, why didn't you want me to stick my hand in there anyway? And so Bill says, and I thought I thought that this was another just kind of kind of very appealing part of the story for me because Bill says that the portal was closing up while he was inside, and another few seconds, and half of you would have been here, and the other half, and then he kind of trails off, and then they kind of look at each other in shock that yeah, uh, Chris was seconds away from being just cut in half. And his daughter and dog and him were, he was going to die in the other dimension while his daughter and her dog were trapped there forever. And I don't know, that idea, like, that idea is just so horrifying to me. And I love, I love that the show concealed that until the end. Like, it wasn't, it could, a lesser story would have had that ticking clock thing. 
it would have been established earlier in the episode. Bill would have said like, oh, we only have a finite amount of time. So you need to, you have like 10 seconds to get her back or whatever. And that would have been this manufactured thriller, um, timetable thing that would have been, it probably would have been suspenseful and, uh, and everything, but it would have undercut that emotional thing of Chris and, and Tina being reunited in the other dimension. And then when we pull out, uh, pull out of the other dimension and go into the regular one, we then learn how, how incredibly, uh, close they were to losing everything. And I don't know. I think that that, that's so, that's so amazing that they concealed that until the denouement of the episode. And I just think that that's, I don't know. I think that's masterful storytelling. Um, and it's, it's such a good like gambit. It's a fun gambit because it makes the tension lie solely on a father getting his daughter back and not on the idea of them, you know, being trapped there or anything. It's just solely on him getting her back. And I, I love that. So then, uh, then the end of the episode comes. We get uh, Rod Sterling's closing narration, which I will play right now. The other half, where? The fourth dimension, the fifth, perhaps. They never found the answer. Despite a battery of research physicists equipped with every device known to man, electronic and otherwise, no result was ever achieved. Except perhaps a little more respect for and uncertainty about the mechanisms of the Twilight Zone. So a couple of things about this closing narration. First, I really like that kind of, I I don't know if it is tongue in cheek or what, but I love that just that opening thing where he says the other half where the fourth dimension, the fifth, perhaps because of what I said before with the, the opening narration of the first episode being uh, referencing the fourth dimension and then being corrected to the fifth dimension. I love that. But I think like this closing narration, I really like it, first of all, because it feels so fleeting and it plays into the force of nature aspect of the other dimension and the portal to the other dimension because he references that they never found the answer that he says, despite a battery of, of research physicists equipped with every device known to man, no result has ever was ever achieved. And I think that that is such a thrilling way to end this story because it is, again, that fleeting idea that, okay, just by happenstance, this portal to another dimension opened up at the exact moment that, uh, or within the exact time frame of a little girl falling in, falling against the, the wall, basically, and falling into it. And now the portal is gone. And it just gives this idea, it's like deep seated in the mind of the viewer that like kind of similar, honestly, kind of similar to the Odyssey of Flight, Flight 33, because it gives us that idea of that like, oh, this portal to another dimension could open up at any time, anywhere, any, anywhere that we all, we are, and then we could be gone forever and lost in this other world, weird, like atmosphere place. And I liken that to the Odyssey of Flight 33, because at the end of Odyssey of Flight 33, we don't have a resolution to the story. And Rod Serling says, look up at the sky and you might see, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it's not Gold Star. That's, that's Nightmare uh, at 30,000 feet or 20,000 feet. Um, 
Well, 30,000 feet for the 2019 show. Anyway, um, anyway, you might see Flight 33 in the air uh, trying to find trying to find home, their right time and everything. And I love that. And now that I'm thinking about it, this this episode does share some interesting similarities with the Odyssey of Flight 33 because the Odyssey of Flight 33 is them finding a pocket of like a wormhole for time travel and everything. And this is kind of a similar kind of concept. So kind of interesting. So overall, little girl, little girl lost. I just, I really love this episode. And it's so interesting again to reiterate that it's an episode that doesn't have that social commentary. It doesn't have like a rich character comeuppance or character growth or anything. This is a thrilling story about a frightened child and and panicked parents trying to get that child back. This is a very thrilling story and I just I'm I was just so enamored with it. Um especially because I think the thing that I really connected to the most is that it's built entirely around this anomaly of physics and it makes the imagination run just wild because of it. And it leaves us with a closing narration that references the physicists trying to figure out the mystery without showing us any of that. And, and by extension, that makes it feel like this urban legend that we just witnessed or a sci- sci-fi ghost story. And I just love it. I love it. I love it. So anyway, that's my review of Little Girl Lost. And I've actually got uh, quite a bit of uh, trivia here uh, before I get into my, my review of science fiction theater here in a second. But um, I pulled some of this trivia from IMDb and from Unlocking the Door to Intelligent and Classic. But the origin of the story is uh, that uh, Richard Matheson uh, based it on a real life incident involving his young daughter who he who uh, they woke he woke up in the middle of the night, found that she had fallen off her bed while asleep and rolled against a wall. And uh, they heard he heard her cries for help. Uh, but. Richard Matheson and his wife were initially unable to locate her daughter. So uh, locate their daughter. So they, uh, so that eventually led to him having this idea. And then he wrote the short story and he named the mother and daughter in the story after his own wife and daughter. So that's interesting. And, uh, in the script, um, (laughs) this I thought was really entertaining. Uh, this is from unlocking the door. Uh, to tell to a television classic, but in the script, Matheson described the other world as quote, uh, uh, Merrill Pye was last seen at a full run down Washington Boulevard, and Merrill Pye was the art director for the show. Um, so just like the description of, of the other dimension was Merrill Pye was last seen at a full run down Washington Boulevard, which I think signals enough that it's like you need to, like, it's going to be a crazy, a crazy other dimension. And then in addition to that, the heading of the other dimension scenes in the script was labeled as interior limbo, which I thought was really interesting. And, uh, this is also the only Twilight Zone episode for where the score, the, the musician, the, the composer, uh, the score composer is credited before the director in the opening credits. Um, and I have a little bit of trivia on that front, I think, is this where it is? So, so basically Bernard Herman was in Paris at the time. And they called him to have him do the score. And he actually recorded the score in Paris. Um, 
and I think that there's kind of a uh, a little a little bit of of reason for that, which I'll uh, kind of fold that into this next piece of trivia. So I'm going to read from Unlocking the Door to Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, so basically, Richard Matheson had written a letter to Buck Houghton after he saw the uh, the initial telecast of Nothing in the Dark. And this is a very interesting letter. So I'm going to read this in full, uh, again, reading from Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. So he said, Dear Buck, I believe that, generally speaking, I have caused a minimum of problems in the part with regard to my association with Twilight Zone. I think I have written some good scripts and have been more than satisfied with our relationship. However, I feel that I must, at this point, raise a brief, polite ruckus as to the treatment my stories have gotten in the past year or so. What brings this on is my admiration for the direction George got on his Nothing in the Dark, which we all saw last night. I feel that I have gotten considerably less on my last three scripts. I thought that Douglas Hayes did a bad job on the Agnes Moorhead story, setting a draggy pace and allowing her to gorge herself on the scenery. I am not too pleased either with Young Man's Fancy, as I feel that Brom missed a lot of values, that Alex Nichol was badly miscast, and that Bear spoiled the ending. Finally, I feel that the Buster Keaton show descended into absolute monotony in the second act and was generally badly directed. For these reasons, I would like to urgently request that Lamont Johnson direct Little Girl Lost. I recall you, Buck, mentioning some director you had in mind, but do not recall whether it was Johnson or not. I think that he is the one to do this story since its basic elements are extremely similar to those in George's story. uh, Circumscribed area, minimum cast, and high emotion. Please let him direct this show, and in addition, please cast John Alvin for the role of Bill. John is an acquaintance of ours and a fine professional actor. We have seen much of his work at the Players Ring, on One Step Beyond, the Jack Benny Show, etc., and have yet to see him do less than a first-rate job. The The rest of the casting I leave to your discretion, although I have indicated my preference for Shatner and that girl or someone of their caliber. I think you know that I am not in the habit of writing letters like this or of raising issues like this, but after reviewing the show last night, to me, rather dismaying deterioration in the presentation of the last three scripts I've done, I feel that I must make myself heard. I have done some good work for The Twilight Zone. I hope I have the right to do this. End quote. So that is a very interesting letter uh, that Richard Matheson, uh, sent after, um, after, uh, watching an episode of the Twilight Zone. And that was written on, uh, January 6th. And on January 12th, uh, Serling wrote a personal reply, um, to Matheson. And I'm going to read this again from, uh, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Uh, so this is Serling's response to Richard Matheson. He said, quote, I agree with you, of course, that in many cases you did not receive the benefit of professional direction. On the other hand, a couple of your shows I thought got exceptional treatment. The script The Last Flight I thought Bill Claxton did a fine job with. As I recall, as I recall it, there were a couple uh, a couple rather ecstatic expository scenes that were beautifully directed. I thought Ralph Nelson also treated you, you handsomely in the Phyllis Kirk and Keenan Wynn show. There's no question about that 
there's no question but that both the Keaton thing and the Agnes Moorhead thing were damaged rather than helped by the director. But I do think, Dick, that these are the ground rules of the goddamn medium. Uh, Doug Hayes was the most singularly successful director we used on the series. He only turned in one bad job, and unfortunately that was on your script. I don't want to belabor this or be defensive about it. I'm only broaching all of these things... All these things to tell you that we're cognizant of your concern and intent on correcting the problem. And so uh, he assured, he also assured him that uh, Little Girl Lost would receive above average treatment. And in Unlocking the Door to Television Classic, Martin Grimes Jr. Uh, posits that it might explain why Bernard Herrmann, uh, who was in Paris, was hired to do the music for an episode that literally any other musician in the U.S. could have composed. Uh, so I just found that to be really interesting. And I'm really delighted that the this correspondence like persists and exists and everything and is here for us to to uh to kind of consume as we talk about the twilight zone and everything and so my final piece of trivia is about the uh similarities between this uh episode and the 1982 film poltergeist uh which is recently was just back in theaters uh, for its 40th anniversary. I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, but it's a really good movie. But anyway, um, it was like a lot of people have said that this episode was the inspiration for Poltergeist. And uh, uh, like, uh, so I'm going to read a quote from an interview that Richard Matheson gave. Uh, So interviewer Matthew Bradley questioned uh, Richard Matheson about it. And this is his quote regarding the similarities between Poltergeist and Little Girl Lost. He said, quote, yeah, I know. But if I'd sued, I would have been clobbered too much money on the other side. Spielberg asked me if he could see a cassette of Little Girl Lost. And I sent him one. He looked at it and then sent it back, and I never heard until someone said, hey, I see they made your Twilight Zone into a movie. (laughs) Of course, there was a lot more to the movie, but certainly that was part of it. I've said it before, I think maybe Spielberg knows this and always came to me with some kind of offer that would compensate to repay me, like writing the script for the Twilight Zone, the movie, or having me as a consultant on Amazing Stories. Uh, End quote. So I think that that's, that's really interesting. I definitely obviously saw very, very strong similarities uh, between Poltergeist and this episode, but I'm glad that it was at least addressed in some form or the other. Um, and yeah, so I'm curious. So that's all the trivia I have for Little Girl Lost. Again, really, really liked this episode. Um, I thought it was thrilling. It was fun. It was suspenseful. The science fiction was fantastic. The dialogue was great. Um, and I think that that also, again, plays into why I enjoy this episode and why I kind of liken it to the Odyssey of Flight 33, because the theoretical physics explain explanation in the show, in this episode, were so kind of realistic and authentic that it reminds me of the technical uh, jargon that was used in the Odyssey of Flight 33. Um, so I don't know. I just, I I don't know. I think that that connection is is pretty interesting to me. So anyway, that's my review of Little Girl Lost. Of course, I'm going to round out this episode of Anthology with a brief review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater, and I'm going to go ahead and play the stinger for that now.
So this episode of Science Fiction Theater is episode 33 from the show's first season. The title is Before the Beginning. It originally aired on December 10th, 1955, and the synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, is a scientist slaves to prove his theory about the origins of life on Earth. In the meantime, he is oblivious to the serious and potential, f- potentially fatal illness his wife has developed. This episode is available to view online. Link in the show notes at dailymotion.com. And I believe it is, as of this recording, also available on uh, YouTube. So this episode was directed by Alvin Ganser and written by Arthur Weiss and Ivan Tors. And it stars Dane Clark. Uh, I should say Twilight Zone alum, Dane Clark. Um, or I guess in this case, future Twilight Zone alum, <laughs> Dane Clark. Uh, Ted DeCorsia. Rachel Ames, and Philip Pine. So as is usually the case, we get a pre-show demonstration from Truman Bradley, where he is sitting at a desk at first, and he opens a giant Bible and says, uh, the book of Genesis, and he reads like Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, um, and he talks about the origin of life on earth. And I've got to say, as someone who's not religious myself, I found it kind of funny the way that it seemed like, and maybe this is a cynic in me talking, but I found it kind of funny that I felt like this was the show trying to placate religious viewers. Um, And it kind of comes into play later at the end of the episode when he gives his kind of outro, when he says something like, um, something like, well, will we ever know the origins of life on earth? Yes. If science figures it out, it'll, it'll be when the almighty deems that it's necessary that we know or something like that. So I feel like there's a certain level of placating religious viewers and everything. But as far as the demonstration is concerned, uh, the kind of prerequisite demonstration of, of science in this episode, in the intro, Truman takes a a kind of a thing of grapes, a vine of grapes, and drops them into liquid nitrogen. And he uses that, uses this as an example. Like he pulls it out and then drops them on the floor and they shatter. And he says that this is proof that life cannot be sustained uh, in a temperature of absolute zero. And before this, he had talked about how uh, science has, uh, science is, uh, that science tells us that billions of years ago, the universe began, um, in a vacuum and, and all of this like energy was just exploded and, and, uh, eventually, you know, matter formed and life began explaining the big bang theory and everything. And so he kind of leaves this introduction with this kind of conundrum of how does life begin out of, out of absolute zero and out of, you know, the conditions of absolute zero in the beginning of the universe. And so that brings us into the episode. And the overall episode is is pretty solid. Uh, Dane Clark does a very good job as this scientist who is very much wrapped up in his work. And it's him and his name is Ken and his partner's name is Norm. Uh, and they're working together and it's clear, like Norm is telling him like, Hey, yeah, we need to go. We need to stop. We need to call it a day. We've been working for 24 hours in the, in the last year and a half, we have worked more than we've lived and everything. So, uh, he's trying to get, get, uh, Ken to, you know, get back into the real world. Um, but he can't, he's too wrapped up in his, in his, uh, world and his, his research and everything. So 
then he realizes that he has a date with his wife, so he needs to go back and, and everything. But that kind of presents this problem because Kate is his wife and they're newlyweds. They've been married for a year and she's at home. She takes a call from Ken. He says that he remembers the date, uh, remembers that they had a date and he'll, you know, be ready soon. And so she talks to his father who's there with her um, and talks about how they've been married a year and Ken has been away at work for most of it. And she's been having these episodes. Like she almost passes out. Um, and then, uh, Ken's father kind of brings her over to the couch and gives her like smelling salt and stuff. <laughs> and then, uh, it's implied through the dialogue or it's directly stated in the dialogue that they, that she has had these episodes, um, more and more frequently. And, I found this to be interesting because, again, this is a 1950s television show. And, like, yes, the gender dynamics are going to be outdated from from a 2022 perspective and everything. But I just found it kind of, kind of funny because she was like, well, uh, like, Ken's father told, like, says, like, are you still going to keep this from, from Ken? And she says that she starts downplaying them. She calls them silly attacks. And she says that he's doing this important work and all I can do is love him and be patient and wait for him. And in my notes, I just put LOL, the fifties. Um, so she goes to the lab and, and this scene was in particular, pretty, pretty awesome because she is trying to get him to go on their date. They're going to go to the lake. They're going to spend a day at the lake. They're going to have a picnic. They're going to do all of this romantic stuff. And so she is trying to have a conversation with him while he is trying to have a conversation with her. His conversation with her is about his work. Her conversation with him is about the lake and it keeps going back and forth and he keeps spinning around her dialogue into being about the research and everything. And I think that, that was a really, really well-designed scene and everything. So I'm not going to spoil the episode, of course, but uh, it is it is pretty awesome. Honestly, it's pretty solid. There's this level of um, interest in it. Like there's there's this thriller aspect of it because... Uh, something happens with the equipment that causes an injury to norm. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Like it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, and there's a lot of question that comes up in, uh, like there's one scene that comes up with Ken's dad asking, asking him if Ken's research is really that important, asking Ken if his research is that important after the accident. And he quotes the Bible and says something like, whatever, God made the world, whatever. Um, and he asks if Ken can actually handle finding out what really happened at the beginning and what what the real properties of the beginning of the universe were. And Ken's response is something to the effect of, I have to know, like we have to find out. And I just found that to be really interesting and uh, thought-provoking in a, in a surprising way. And so I'll leave it up to you guys to watch the episode to see if, you know, if he succeeds or how it ties in with Kate's illness and everything. But I do think it's a pretty well done episode in terms of, uh, in terms of speculative fiction and in terms of just general storytelling, because there's a dovetailing effect of Ken's research with Kate's condition that I feel like is really, really interesting and, um, and intriguing because it's just, it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And there, there's this nice, um, 
there's this nice representation of like really advanced science and it's very again like speculative fiction it's very cool to see like what what the story where the story leads in terms of the science of it and it's just really cool it's grounded in in a fantastical element basically um but it's really neat and again Dane Clark's performance is really good in it and his character learns a lot from from the experience and everything and there's this really nice kind of moral uh conclusion uh that he reaches in it and he's kind of all the better for it or all the worse if you know if you don't want to be spoiled about what happens i don't know uh no he he comes out the other side with some uh some important life lessons and everything so Overall, Before the Beginning was a really solid episode of Science Fiction Theater, um, and I actually do have a piece of trivia for this episode. I pulled this from IMDb. Um, I'm just going to read the trivia from IMDb directly. Um, it says, quote, Dr. Ken Donaldson is obsessing over his experiment to make organic molecules to create life. This TV episode aired two years after the first report on the Miller-Urey um, experiment. Miller and Urey prepared a chamber containing methane, ammonia, hydrogen, and water to simulate Earth's primordial atmosphere. Within the chamber, electric sparking simulated lightning. This simple setup produced many of the basic molecules of life and gave credence to the primordial soup idea about the origins of life on Earth. So I found that to be pretty interesting. It kind of feels like this this show, Science Fiction Theater, was kind of taking like a ripped from the headlines sort of approach to its storytelling, and I, I love it for that. I really do. Um, so yeah, so that is my review of science fiction theaters before the beginning season one, episode 33. I will be back next week with hopefully next week. <laughs> I should say, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth there because Heartland Film Festival is still, still going on and everything. But anyway, next week on the show, next time on anthology, I'm going to be reviewing, uh, the Twilight Zone Season 3, Episode 27, Person or Persons Unknown, and the bonus review will be for uh, uh, Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 34, titled The Long Day. Um, and once again, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. First of all, I really appreciate it. And just so you guys know, Patreon got access to this episode about, uh, uh, this is Sunday that I'm recording this. The main feed, I'm posting this up on Thursday. So I'm posting this on Patreon right now as soon as I finish it. So they had a, almost a full week. And then hopefully I'll be able to get episode, the next episode of, the, of uh, Anthology recorded within the next day or so. So they'll get access to it a full week before you guys get access to it. So another incentive, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for uh, some exclusive Patreon content and early access to episodes. But I'm going to go ahead and start playing myself out. I want to say once again, thank you guys so much for listening and check out my other shows, Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies. And uh, check out also check out basically my archive of everything I've done this year in terms of writing and podcasting at obsessiveviewer.com slash Matt hurt 2022 um until next time thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode and now enjoy this short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed for the full clip and more exclusive patreon content such as early access to episodes tv book and movie reviews and reaction recordings commentary tracks and patreon poopery episodes 
Go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. With E.T., we have the added bonus of having that kind of broken home kind of thing. Uh, Dee Wallace is the adult. She's the matriarch of a family with several kids. She's clearly on her own. She's trying to do her best and everything. And I know that this has been talked to death and everything, but it's just a very, very wonderful dynamic that's presented, like with a very strong backbone for the story. Because in that diner scene, or not diner scene, but the dining room scene, where uh, where Gertie says that that their father is in is in Mexico with with a woman, and D. Wallace just breaks down and starts crying and everything. It's just it is so wonderful the way that that communicates so much about the history of the family and what the family is currently going through without bogging us down with the exposition dump, bogging us down with the melodrama of it and everything. It just lives there, it breathes there, and it is just wonderful for it to be uh, explored in that way. And I really love it for that. And that carries through the entire movie. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.